This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. According to the latest Education Next poll, support for vouchers available to poor students is increasing, but the public still prefers vouchers for all students by a wider margin. And the public is overwhelming in its support of tax credits for donations to foundations that give scholarships to attend private schools. But when Education Next asked about education savings accounts two years ago in 2017, only 37% of the public supported education savings accounts. Well, is that because the public doesn't have the faintest idea what an education savings account or an ESA, as it's referred to in the trade, what an ESA really is? So today I have with me an expert on education savings accounts. He is Matt Bienberg, Director of Education Policy at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the few states that has enacted an education savings account. The Goldwater Institute has just released a report describing how this ESA program is working, and I'm pleased to have Matt Bienberg, the author of that report, with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Matt, for joining me. On the education Good morning. Exchange. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Matt, I know that people can put money into education savings accounts for their children's college education, but this program is something different. It allows people to use monies or a savings account for K-12 education. How does this work? Sure. So, yeah, the education savings account program in Arizona is known as the Empowerment Scholarship Account. And essentially what it is is it's a program where uh, the the program takes part of what taxpayers would typically have spent sending a student to K-12 education in the public school system and takes a portion of that funding and puts it into essentially an individualized account for that student's family, and that's the education savings account. And then that child and their family are able to use those funds on a number of different things. So it can be anything from tutoring or special education therapies, private school tuition, at-home curriculum materials. So it's essentially a program that gives the family the opportunity to kind of customize what that education might look like and look at some flexible options outside of simply going to the public school system. But can you go to the public school system and get your education savings account, both? No, great question. So the idea is that you are essentially relinquishing that claim to go to the public school for that year. So you wouldn't be taking both. You would essentially say, I've you know, I'm maybe in a district school this year, and I've decided I'd like to enter into the ESA program, and so the state will no longer have you enrolled in the public school and instead begin depositing those funds into your ESA account. So it's sort of a different option for the family. Well, one year I took my family abroad. Would I be able to get my education savings account that year I went abroad? So another great question. So the way that it's set up is essentially there's a lot of um, specifications around, at least in Arizona in particular, about who is eligible for the program and then what the allowable expenses are. So in Arizona, there's several groups of of students who qualify for that, and I can go into that in a little bit more detail. But essentially, the funds in the program are restricted for educational uses. And it's kind of similar to a lot of folks who are more familiar with things like health savings accounts, where you have money that's put in this account and you're able to use it for, you know, a doctor's visit or, uh, you know, helping to pay for prescriptions. It's very similar with an ESA where you can use it on textbooks or tuition or these curriculum materials, you can't, you know, just use it to, to, you know, travel the world. But I have to stay in Arizona. 
So one of the requirements on there is to uh, be attending, for example, if you're using it for tuition at a school within Arizona, you can use it on uh, teaching services, curriculum materials that don't have those same geographic restrictions, but the program is open only to students who are from and residing in, in Arizona. Well, now, can any parent make use of a, a, an education savings account in Arizona? So currently, there are only a few subgroups who can, um, and those groups include uh, a lot of disadvantaged communities. So, for example, uh, students with special needs qualify for the ESA program, students who are coming from the foster care system, also the Native American reservations, uh, students who come from uh, military families. So if you have a parent who uh, has fallen in, in action or uh, is serving on active duty, all of these different groups uh, currently qualify for the ESA program. Um, so these, right now, those are the, the, the groups that, that are part of it, and that, that comes out to uh, only you know, a, a piece of the, the population that's currently eligible. Well, so how many people are actually uh, making use of an education savings account in Arizona now? Sure. So the program started in 2012 with only about 150 students. Um, it's been growing as some of these categories have been added to it. And so now they're, the report that we just came out with kind of uh, documented about 6,400 students uh, this past school year. Well, I know that there was some controversy during the last election about putting ESAs on the ballot. Uh, what was the issue there, and how was it resolved? Sure. So the state legislature actually enacted uh, what would have been an expansion to give that opportunity to all families in the state, so rather than having to fill out paperwork saying, you know, I am part of one of these particular groups, it would essentially say any student who's, you know, finding that they're not being served in the, the public school system uh, regardless of income or the, the background, um, would have that opportunity to go ahead and, and do that. And so that was enacted by the legislature. And Arizona has a, a system that allows bills to be referred to the ballot. And so a, a group of folks who were opposed to the program uh, essentially organized a, a, a opposition campaign and a very effective kind of PR and messaging campaign. And ultimately, that m proposition did not end up passing. Uh, so the bill wasn't enacted. So the program remains open only to those specific groups. So there's still an interest in broadening the program, but the last time that was attempted, it got uh, voted down in the uh, in the by a, a referendum. Yeah, and so and happy to to jump more into any details on this. But for example, this past year, um, there was a situation where uh, one of the groups that uh, is, is eligible are students on the Native American reservation, for example, and uh, many of these students started receiving letters from the Department of Education saying that they were in violation of the program because they were attending school that was just outside the state line. It turned out that these, many of these students had been attending that school uh, for more than one year and the department had approved that and suddenly essentially rescinded that permission uh, and sent these you know, fairly aggressive letters to go after the students. So the legislature this past year passed a sort of one-year emergency reprieve to make sure that those students, you know, weren't kicked out of the program. And the governor has, you know, expressed an interest in trying to make sure that these protections are, are permanent to allow the, the students to remain there. Well, so far we've been talking about Arizona, and we'll come back to that. But I just want to ask this other question, which is, are other states uh, trying out ESAs as well? Or is it only in Arizona that you can get an education savings account? Right. So even though it is a fairly new program, again, Arizona was the first to do it back in about 2012. Uh, there have been several other states that have signed on, uh, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, Tennessee, um, 
And so, you know, most of these programs right now are restricted to students with, with disabilities. Uh, there was one, I believe, Tennessee, that has now uh, just this past year uh, implemented one that will be open to low-income students in parts of the state. So it is a, uh, a new policy option that the states are beginning to really take a look at. So in your report, you say that uh, education savings accounts actually save the people of Arizona some of their tax dollars. Uh, how can a program that's giving out state money to families to spend however they want on their children's education save the money tax dollars? Sure. And so essentially the way that that works is right now in Arizona, the average per pupil spending is about $10,000, a little over that, but it's about $10,000 per student. So that means that every time there's a student in the public school system, taxpayers are spending about $10,000 to support that student's education each year. So if that student instead opts out and goes into the ESA program, the cost for that uh, for a non-special education student is about $6,000 a year. So essentially there's you know, a gap of about three dollars $4,000 that the total resources going into that student are less. So, you know, people don't tend to, to think about the cost of public school instruction because, you know, it's, it's free and, you know, it's tuition free. And so folks don't tend to associate that as having a cost. But obviously when it comes to, you know, the taxpayer resources that are behind it, you know, in Arizona it's $10,000. So then that student goes to the ESA spending about six. You yeah, but, but, with, but now, significant. how about the federal aid that comes in? Don't, doesn't Arizona lose that federal aid when the parent goes into the ESA program? Sure, and this um, gets into one of the areas that we do touch on in the paper, which is that if a student gets an ESA, typically um, the way that that's funded is just from the state general fund dollars, that, that ESA award. So there's no local funding, there's no federal funding, nothing is attached to that. So the $10,000 you talked about is just the state funding? So, so that $10,000 is from all sources. So that, that estimate is, is a kind of official estimate from the state legislative budget office of local, state, and federal dollars. So total taxpayer funding is about that, that $10,000 mark. With the ESA, it's about $6,000. And so uh, that, those federal dollars, for example, with, with Title I, which is the, you know, the federal funding for low-income students, we, we touch on this in the paper, there's a provision which uh, indicates you know, that money is supposed to continue to, to follow students to some extent uh, even outside of the, the public school system. In practice, that typically doesn't happen. So a district, you know, gets their allotment for Title I funds. They keep those funds, even if a student, you know, may, maybe leaves that public school and goes to the private. So that money will actually stay uh, in, in those cases with the public school system. Well, I, I, I understand that now. So, but still, the public schools have all kinds of fixed costs. So why isn't it the case that if a lot of people take the advantage of this ESA program, the public schools are going to be stuck with all the fixed costs and won't be getting the state aid they would otherwise receive? Sure, and that's a great question, and we also delve into that kind of from a few different angles from the paper. And so one of those is just looking at, for example, you know, we hear a lot, well, if students are leaving the public school system in, in large numbers and going to ESAs, that's going to pull away funding from the schools, and as you said, you know they have these fixed costs. BSA program right now it's about three percent of eligible students who are in it, so you know a fairly modest number in comparison. In Arizona, for example, about 17, 18 percent of students attend a charter school, and estimates have shown that almost one in two out of Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is, attend the public open enrollment system, which essentially says that a student can go to a different public school than the one they're assigned to. So, for example. If you have a student in a school district in Phoenix 
and they don't feel like they're being served and they go to a adjacent district within the city, that first district loses 100% of that student's funding. And so, you know, that combined is about, again, up to about 50% of students that are participating in that. The ESA program, by contrast, about 3% of kids who are eligible. So just in terms of the magnitude, it's a fairly modest amount. And so you're saying, actual, you're saying basically that there's a lot of kids out there who are exercising choice that uh, means that the local school district could be losing enrollment. They could be losing enrollment because families are moving to other school districts because they're sending kids to other school districts. They're sending kids to charter schools. This is a pretty small potatoes compared to other all the other options out there for a family. Correct. Yeah, and so that's that's one piece of it is just trying to keep that in, in context to you know to, to put that in perspective a little bit. Um, one of the other areas that I think is helpful to, to keep in mind on this is that. Uh, in Arizona, at least, there's uh, particularly high student growth in in the state. So Arizona has increased our total K-12 funding by about 35-40% over the last 20 years. And so districts have gotten substantially more funding over time in terms of the total amount of dollars that are going into uh, the, the K-12 education system. And typically what people are concerned about is the, the per-pupil amount, right? So they say, well, we've gotten a lot more funding, but we also have a lot more students to shoulder the expense of. And so typically, um, you know, advocates for public school funding don't view that as, uh, you know, an improvement for the, the funding formula if just in total the uh, per-pupil amount doesn't change. So giving districts, you know, an extra $100 million if they have to educate, you know, the same number of students, and so at the end of the day they're kind of uh, even for per-pupil funding, they don't view that as, as a positive. With the ESA program, for example, it actually has some benefits going the other way, which is that they actually keep, as we alluded to, those Title I funds in some cases, but also a lot of the state funds. So on a per-pupil basis, it's actually helping those schools. So you're telling me that one of the reasons why a program like this can be introduced into Arizona is that a school district really doesn't miss those students that they're they're losing because enrollments are climbing anyhow. It's a growth state. People are moving into Arizona. They're getting more students every year. And so really one of the challenges in Arizona is just can you have enough educational facilities to take care of everybody? Right, and, and Arizona is definitely a growth state in terms of its overall K-12 population. So every year, Arizona adds about $80 million of K-12 funding just to take into account more students. We're spending about $100 million a year building school facilities. And so absolutely, it's you know important to take that into account because uh, you know typically folks, that, again, when they see, well, are you taking students out of the system, you know, they're not typically uh, also looking at the fact that as we add more students to the system, that also brings additional costs. So why are people so opposed to the program when actually it's saving the state money, it's uh, actually giving the school districts more dollars per pupil, and enrollment is growing anyhow, so this fixed cost argument isn't that big a deal in, a, in an expanding state. Why is there opposition? So I think that it's similar to, you know, for example, with, with charter schools or even some of the states that, that don't necessarily have the open enrollment policies that are as flexible. There is, I think, a lot of times things viewed a little bit as a kind of us versus them, a sort of turf war, um, you know, and feeling if there's additional options. You know, currently it's it's a little more, um, you know, from the district's point of view, if, if they're sort of the only game in town, 
uh, as opposed to if, you know, there's competition and different options and they're sort of jockeying for, for students, I think that there's just sort of a natural protectiveness that, that comes with that. Um, and I think that, you know, as has been seen with charter schools and a lot of these other choice options, you know, in Arizona, there's 200,000 students who have gone to charter schools. Uh, you know, parents and families have really aggressively voted, you know, to go to a lot of these educational options. And I know that, you know, school districts a lot of times look at that with some suspicion. And this is, you know, one of the other areas you, you talked about, the fixed costs. Um, you know, if you have a school district and students are leaving and they go to either another school district or a charter school or an ESA, you know, they may make the case that says, well, we have some additional facility space that, you know, we can't just, you know, that, that's still there. We still have to pay for that. Uh, you know, we put out a paper earlier this year uh, highlighting some examples of school districts and charter schools, uh, for example, working together where they co-locate and the district might say, we have additional space that's freed up and they invite a charter school to come. That charter school pays them, you know, essentially a lease or, or a rent payment to help make up for that. And so you have some of these, these really great examples of, of partnership, which goes against that kind of us versus them mentality. And that's sort of another example when you hear, you know, well, if you let students go to an ESA or a charter school, if that means that there's, you know, available building space, uh, you know, rather than having to leave that empty and have, again, that kind of uh, adversarial perspective, if you encourage districts either with each other or with charter schools to begin using those resources efficiently, you actually end up with some really great success stories. Well, one of the arguments that I've heard is that, that uh, families aren't necessarily spending that money on their children's education. They're, they're getting that money from the state to spend, but they, they can spend it on things other than their children's education, or at least it's hard for the state to prevent them from that. Is this kind of fraud going on? Sure. So, and there was a report from the state auditor general, which found it kind of documented uh, some of the misspending that had taken place with the program that, that gained some uh, attention. And that's actually one of the areas we also delve into in the paper is to look at that and understand, you know, what's the scope of the problem? Well, what does this consist of? And the piece of the narrative that kind of got left off was that that misspending came out to about 1% of the program's uh, total. In terms of total resources that were going to parents through the program, about 1% was getting uh, labeled as this misspending and fraud. And so, again, kind of putting that in perspective, and the question is within that, you know, what does that actually entail? And I talked about sort of those Native American students uh, earlier in the program. Those were students who got letters from the Attorney General saying they had, uh, from the Department of Education, that the Attorney General was going to be collecting money from them because they had misspent their funds. And that was having gone to a school just outside the state border, still within the Navajo Reservation, that the Department of Education had approved in the past. And so, technically speaking, from a legal perspective, that was, they said, well, this was, you know, misspending. And so, you know, that's an example where a lot of these families spend money having potentially even gotten approval in the past for that same exact expenditure and then are told, you know, you're actually on the hook, of this, hook for this. And we, we kind of liken this a little bit, again, to um, the, the health sector, you know, surprise hospital bills. If somebody goes to a hospital, thinks they're covered, you know, with their insurance, and they find out that the actual doctor who, you know, may have worked with them was not part of that network, and they find that, you know, their expenses weren't covered. You have a lot of cases where parents have bought something thinking, you know, this was a curriculum material for my student, and then they find out later that, well, that was a supplementary curriculum material. That wasn't part of the core curriculum. And so even though it was clearly educational in nature, that might get portrayed as misspending. And so, you know, a lot of this kind of brings context. And the last point on that is we looked at, you know, comparing this to, you know, what does that look like to comparable programs with the, you know, the food stamps program, which is also run essentially by a debit card, 
Uh, there's about $600 million of, of misspending that pops up a year, according to official estimates, which is also about 1% of the program, coincidentally. And some of the estimates that have been done on the National School Lunch Program has found uh, improper payments ranging up to about 16%. So, you know, it's easy to sort of point fingers at a program. And it's not to say that, you know, whether it's food stamps or ESAs and National School Lunch, that we shouldn't try and aggressively, you know, reduce misspending whenever it occurs. But the portrayal of it, I think, has been somewhat opportunistic in some of these cases, or at least, you know, giving um, only kind of half the story. So I noticed that in your report that a lot of the students who, who uh, use an ESA are, are, are students who are in need of special ed. Uh, why is it that there is such a high demand uh, for this uh, ESA among families who have a child who needs special ed? Sure, so that's a great question. Yeah, the largest group of students in the program are, are special needs students. And, and just as an aside, outside of those with special needs, the largest group is actually students uh, from military families. That was one of the findings that we came across, that the single largest group of users outside those special needs students are families from the military, which is something that we thought was a, a pretty you know, a remarkable finding, something that, you know, as other states look at this program to really understand that, you know, there are populations where having flexibility that educational opportunity really is, is something extraordinary. And speaking specifically to the special needs students, um, the program's open to anybody with those special needs. And so that comes out to about 120,000 students in the state who are eligible. And so just in terms of who is eligible, they are kind of the largest group. And so you would naturally sort of expect that. And in terms of why those families then actually choose to go ahead and do it, you know, obviously special education being one of those areas there where you know, students have very individual and unique needs, and they're not always met, you know, by the, the local offerings. And so giving those families an opportunity to really know what their student needs and be able to find something. And those students, in the funding formula in Arizona, as with a lot of other states, they generate, you know, sometimes $25,000, $30,000 or more in terms of what is spent on them in the public school. And so the ESA program, again, takes a piece of that. It's a smaller amount gives that to the parents and, and gives them that ability to pursue, you know, uh, special education therapies and those at-home curriculum materials and whatever it is that, that they may feel best serves those students. So they um, get a somewhat larger savings account, but it's still less than the expenditures would be if they were going uh, to the local school. Correct, yeah. So what have I missed here, Matt? Is there something about the program that you think is important that I haven't asked you about? Um, I think uh, that that's that's a pretty great overview. I guess one thing I, I would touch on a little bit, um, just to some of your earlier questions about um, the, the financial impact of the program. So one of the main thrusts that we, we came out from the program is finding this, again, you, you asked a little bit about what are the financial implications for school districts. And one of the things that we found is uh, on a per pupil basis, the ESA program actually helps the school district. And in Arizona, for, for example, you know, typically, if a student attends a, a district or a charter school, that district gets the funding attached to them. But there's also a significant portion of funding that's essentially a fixed pot of money, and it just gets distributed among all the students in public school. And so the way that works is if you can envision a, a big, large piggy bank uh, that's a fixed amount of money. And so the more students you have in the public school system drawing from that, the less each gets. It's sort of distributed evenly across all students. With the ESA program, when a student leaves the public school system, their money from that piggy bank essentially stays in the piggy bank and gets redistributed to the other students. And so uh, in Arizona, it's called the Classroom Site Fund, which is about $600 million. And so 
that comes out to about $600 for every student that they get of their piece of this piggy bank. And so when a student goes to an ESA, they're essentially giving $600 back to the public school system. So the public schools no longer have the responsibility to educate that student, but they now actually have that additional funding, which, you know, as you have more students in there, uh, you know, starts to aggregate a little bit. And so, again, it's one of these examples that you tend to hear, well, they must be losing students and losing funding, but on a per-pupil basis, it actually has some of these, these benefits that actually push resources back to the public school students. So it sounds like a contradiction, but the, the public schools end up with more money and the taxpayer doesn't pay as much uh, for the cost of uh, the education of their children. Uh, all of this is an amazing story, uh, Matt, uh, and uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Matt Beinberg, Director of Research at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. He is the author of a new report entitled The Public School Benefits of Education Savings Accounts. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.